Before we get started with today's episode, I want to invite you to Montana this summer to practice with David, Kyle, and me, August 19th through 23rd. We keep our week small and intimate and take the yoga practice outside our literal box of a mat, exploring our physiology, psychology, and the beauty of nature. Visit ashtangadispatch.com for details on this event and more. Faced a bit too much um, emphasis and, and too much uh, weight on on the on the relationship with the teacher, which you know, in turn, incredibly empowers the teacher. Which I don't think is such a good thing for the teacher in the long term. Welcome to the Ashanga Dispatch podcast, where we explore yoga beyond the shapes we make on our mat by bringing you conversations with the people who interest and inspire us, and at times, make us question. Like today's guest, Gregor Melee, who incidentally is married to Monica Gauchi, who joined us on the podcast just last month. It was such an unexpected conversation, right? Two conversations, actually, neither of which turned out as I planned. The first one was over the phone, which is always tough given the sound quality of those conversations. But at least that conversation does help give a little perspective in how we arrived at the second. Which is why I think we should include some of the first conversation, because he makes some really valid points on both sides. Plus, it gives listeners more of a context and insight into the way Gregor thinks. Including his very early interest in theology. Yeah, by age nine, he had already read both the Bible and the Quran. Except religion wouldn't offer Gregor the spiritual guidance he sought. In fact, his early experience in the Catholic Church left him rather traumatized and led him eventually to yoga. So forgive the sound quality here, but listen to Gregor in his own words describe. When I started yoga, um, there was this profound sense of loss that I was coming from a culture that had lost its spiritual heart. Yeah, so, you know, what I saw, Christianity back then had lost its spiritual heart. Uh, Christianity back then had destroyed all of the European indigenous cultures. We white people had wiped out most of indigenous cultures on earth. So when I was entering adolescence, everything seemed to be totally defiled. Yeah. And so because of that, there was this incredible need to find something somewhere else, somebody that wasn't defiled. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of us, when we came to India in the 1970s, et cetera, et cetera, um, we, we were looking exactly for that. And then when we found some things we had this enormous psychological need to have found purity that it had to be that and it couldn't be any other. Which is probably why, as you'll hear in our second interview, he ended up part of like five or six cults before Stronga Yoga, which he'll also point out shares many of those same characteristics. 
But it isn't just firsthand experience Gregor's speaking from. He's also spent a fair amount of time studying sociology, anthropology, and here's one that caught me by surprise, quantum physics. One of my favorite subjects is quantum physics. And I was like just trying to uh, give a theological explanation based on quantum physics, which is very beautiful, but it would have taken too long. And about 10 more episodes. Or lifetimes by my standards. No, but even that kind of makes sense. Because for one, quantum physics attempts to explain how stuff we can't see with the naked eye can dramatically affect each other. So like how Gregor describes the effects of power stratification and authority within the invisible domain of the heart chakra. Not just in terms of yoga, but how it's dramatically playing out in nearly every faction of life. Right. The important thing is that in the domain of the heart chakra, there cannot be authority, power, stratification, and hierarchy. It is anathema to the heart chakra. It cannot happen. Yeah. So, and, and so that leads me to the point that uh, any, any relationship between teacher and student that is trying to convey some of the messages of the higher chakras uh, must transform that relationship between teacher and student as well. Yeah? And so what that means is that the teacher, as the relationship goes on, the teacher must deconstruct themselves as an authority and must actually empower the student to, to become at least an authority as much as the teachers. And so, of course, in the past, we, we have very much um, the model of, of the teachers clinging to, the, to power. Yeah? And, and if you really look at this is sort of what has marred um, uh, a religion over the last 10,000 years. Yeah? But it has also marred any form of worldly authority. If, if you look at what is currently happening in, in politics worldwide in almost every country, I don't need to point to a particular country, power structures are absolutely corrupted. Yeah? And so that means if, if yoga wants to, to contribute anything to, to a healing of that problem that we find very much in politics, in economy, in sports, in entertainment, uh, everywhere, in spirituality, then yoga must become a vehicle of dismantling power and authority itself. It's interesting to me how Gregor later on will talk about the Ashtanga yoga system as that sacred vehicle for healing, but will also of it as cult-like and therefore harmful. Within quantum mechanics, there's also the belief that one form of energy can also have multiple characteristics, so have two different forms at the same time, like light being both waves and particles. So basically, no one thing is ever just one thing at any one time. It's all so much more complex than that. Exactly. Which is why in the following uninterrupted segment of the podcast, you'll perhaps hear some conflicting ideas. The most uncomfortable would be those that contradict your own. I know it was for me anyway. But then I had to remind myself, the yoga is made up of opposing forces. It's how we find harmony. 
It's how we find balance. And I do believe it's how we'll find our way forward. Here's Gregor Mele from our second conversation at his home in Byron Bay, Australia. So let's say first, you know, I'm a six times cult survivor. Um, for me to join cults and to be part of them was a big part of my life, you know. So I, when I grew up, I thought it would be the most forward thing to join a cult. This was exactly what I wanted to do because it was the most forbidden thing you could imagine. You know, of course, when I was, was young, you know, in the late 1970s, you know, we heard horrible things about cults. So I thought this is exactly what I'd want to do with my life. I want to, you know, join cults. Yeah. So um, now what is exactly a cult? You know, of course, the, the word cult um, is, is defined it can't be precisely defined, but uh, it, it is being differently looked at by sociologists and by psychologists. Sociologists are looking at the societal influence of cults, and therefore they look at cults more beneficial. You know, for example, a sociologist will say a cult is an um, uh, a set of beliefs which is shared by a particular group but is not shared by another group and while there may be uh, ir irrational elements there must be some irrational elements you know which of course all religions have irrational elements it will then also result in a particular hierarchy you know so there is particular people who are outstanding let's say founders of religions and um uh, there's then a hierarchy, the, the, um, the belief system uh, crystallizes as a, as a social hierarchy, but sociologists will say that, look, um, the, a positive benefit of cults will often um, outweigh um, the negative influence, you know. So, for example, all religions, according to sociology, are cults. Yeah. Yet we would say that a lot of religions, we would accept the fact that they would have more benefits than uh, demerit. Yeah. We would also have to look at most nations as cults. Yeah. Because, for example, let's remember that a nation state is a myth that crystallized in the late 1800 in the, in the 19th century before we all, all of us were subjects of a particular king, yeah? And we were not American or Australian, you know? For example, uh, I'm Australian, but, you know, it would be, um, there's currently this thing going on in Australia where they talk about boat people, you know, people arriving here by boat. So if you have the money to buy a flight ticket, you're not a boat person, yeah? So that is a totally irrational thing, yeah? To call an immigrant a boat person, a boat, pe boat person. And this, I saw this photo with this Aboriginal elder who says, having, having problems with boat people, so did we 200 years ago because... You know, us arrived here, Captain Cook arrived here 200 years ago by boat. Yeah, so we are all immigrants from the point of the first, for seen from the first people. Yeah. We have a little bit of that going on in the States definitely, too. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So look, um, 
you know, I read an, uh, an, a placard the other day where I said, where the placard said, America was made great by immigrants. Yeah, which is absolutely true. You know, so in other words, there is a myth created retrospectively who is American and who is not. Yeah, or who is Australian and who is not. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, if you then ask the politicians, who is it, they will say, well, it's people who share a particular, sort of, a particular set of values. Well, it's getting a bit vague then, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the sociologist idea of, uh, of a cult, uh, a set of values, beliefs, some of them irrational, that creates, uh, culminates in a, in a social structure. So sociology... Uh, looks at the societal influence of cults and therefore looks at cults more through a positive lens where psychology will look at the influence on individuals yeah and therefore it is often they look more at the malicious side of cults yeah so they would say um, that part of the cult philosophy is an element of deception yeah now look the first subject that I studied when I went to university was comparative religion. Yeah, from my critical perspective today, I would say that a religion has to involve an element of deception. So, if you look at all of the myths around the, f- the founders of religions, you know, you would say, well, you know, um, there's certainly beliefs that there must be some beliefs who do not stack up. You know, otherwise. So you must propose some beliefs that are hard to swallow for some people and some people swallow them and that's how you become a member of the cult. Yeah. So looking at Ashtanga, um, obviously the belief that you know the series was given from Javi to Abraham, then on to Noah, and I've got a couple of twists eventually down to Ramamu and Brahmachari to and Joyce. And if you change the series in any way, uh, the Lord will not happy, be happy with you and will strike you down with a lightning. Then whenever you do something which is, or there's a particular set of actions which is allowed and they are sanctioned and they are therefore called traditional. Yeah, but if you look exactly into the tradition, you notice the tradition is just a few decades old. Yeah, even in the 1980s, 70s, still things were done much differently than today. As an example, when I learned um, uh, from Patabi Joyce, Patabi Joyce didn't care at all when I stood up from my drop back. You know, I had done all of the postures of primary, well. You know, not particularly well, but he added me on then in intermediate. And then by the time I got to Kapotasana, I could stand up from a drop back, which I think is an, is the organic place to stand up from a drop back. And certainly not um, after the um, primary series where there is nothing that builds up your back bend, yeah, that supports you in your back bend. In fact, you almost have to rip off your rip your back bend open if you want to stand up bend. Yeah, then we have the rigid um, uh, set of postures. Um, if you give uh, um, um, uh, Barakonasana before 
rather before uh, Marjasana D has been practiced, you're considered a non-traditional teacher. Non-traditional, yeah? I have heard that, yes. Yes, and so the term non-traditional is being sprouted around um, without critical examination. How old is the tradition? Where does it come from? Whose tradition is it, you know? Is it worth to call it a tradition if it's 30, 40 years old, you know? Um, The term parampara, um, look, that's cult. Yeah, that's certainly Sanskrit for cult. Yeah, um, let me not go into too into too much detail. But where does the parampara exactly come from, and how many generations does it go back, and who is the founder of the parampara? If you critically ask this question, you're not a member of the cult anymore. Yeah, and so then, with that comes the whole problem that um, when you uh, leave. Or when, when you when you are critical, uh, of course you get censored by certain members who in Ashanga are actually called the Ashanga police. Yeah, um, and th- so the problem then is that it's very difficult to leave because everybody that you know is part of the whole social network. And the moment when you leave it, you will lose all of your friends. You know, which is particularly important because. Um, you get up at 4.30 in the morning, hell, you know, I used to get up 3.30 in the morning, yeah? So there is nobody else that you actually know apart from other people who get up at 4.30 in the morning. And so you have only one choice, that either you you swallow what the Ashtanga police says, or you you join the late night crowd again, you know, which you obviously don't want to do, you know? So it's very difficult. So you have to either be alone, yeah? Or if you want to have this social field, uh, more or less try to fit in and, and accept certain certain tenets of the cult, yeah. And uh, and so what psychologists f- focus in is is of course the the harmful um, aspect of the cult. So that would be a the deception. You know that there is toxic beliefs such as. Look, there is a teaching which has been handed down, obviously, from a divine source. Well, the teaching is only 50 years old, I'm sorry, you know. So who exactly did get it, get it, give it, from, God, get it from God, you know? And so you, you, you can't actually submit any evidence and say, look, this is no good because it said, well, it's the tradition, it's the parampara, yeah? So that's a typical cult cultic belief yes you can't say this doesn't make any sense so what i would like to see is that this whole terminology parampara um guru um ashanga police uh, tradition you know that all of those things would be dropped and if we just have a look at at the merit of what is being said yeah. So, for example, if somebody can show that for this particular person there is demerit if they don't do warm-up postures before they do tripadmasana, yeah, or before they try marajasana D, then I think what is being said should only be judged on its merit of what is being said, and it should not be judged based on who says it. Yeah, often in class students say, ah, so-and-so has said this and this. What do you say about this? I say, don't tell me who said it. 
say me what is tell me what is being said and then i'm happy to examine it yeah because automatically this so and so says what do you says you know that sort of says up that dichotomy yeah that means there are nonsensical beliefs being sprouted in ashtanga we see a lot of nonsensical beliefs yeah there's a lot of beauty as well but they are based on some authority because so and so has said let's not say so and so has said it yeah let's just say does it make sense that we do it and if so why yeah and if it doesn't make sense why does it not make sense and is there a better way of doing it and let's not say so and so has said and therefore we keep doing it yeah so that is i think that's a a, a toxic set of beliefs yeah that something is being repeated it sort of reminds me when i was young and i was making suggestions you know the old people around me would always say oh we've always done it like that oh we'll never do it like that oh everybody could come and make suggestions here see and do you see that it's exactly how it is in ashtanga today Yeah, let's listen to the suggestions and when they make sense, let's learn and let's listen to the suggestions. And even if they come from a young member of the community and from a novice member of the community. Yeah, this is how a community learns. You know, there's a suggestion being made. Let's listen to it. Okay, what would happen if we do it? Should we try it out? Yeah, and not just that's nonsense. Yeah, there's no growth in that. I definitely have experienced both. I mean, I definitely have had an experience of that more rigid, dogmatic mm. um, <clears throat> belief system. Mm. I wouldn't say that I have presented that as part of the podcast, but in my personal experience have mm. definitely um, been hurt by that way of thinking, um, mm. you know, mm. but also and I've I, I, I am really having a hard time swallowing the idea of it being a cult because community is so important mm. to me personally. Mm. And I think for many people, mm. it, it's hard to go it alone and mm. it feels good to be a part of something. Um, yeah, it feels good to belong. It mm. feels good not to be alone. Oh, totally. And, you know, if you're getting up at four o'clock in the morning, yes. it feels good to know that there are other people getting up at four o'clock in the yeah. morning or, or even you, you started off mm. on this path young, yeah. alone and sort of a rebel. Yes. I mean, you, you eight years old reading the Bible, you know, 12 mm. years old, the Quran, the, then into Buddhist philosophy. I mean, mm. there weren't many kids your own age, I'm sure, doing no, all of that. I don't recall that there were any, no. So I can see where, you know, belonging yes. <clears throat> must have felt good and supported. Yeah. Yes, of course, you know, but now you see that, um, you know, belonging um, is, is a very, very important um, uh, a part of us And it's a very important part of us because it is part of our uh, mammalian ancestry. Yeah? It's part of the limbic brain. And uh, it's, it's basically like, if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, um, you will see that the reason why mammals are, became so incredibly successful um, is because they formed groups, packs, flocks, pods, Uh, etc where individuals work together and so much of it uh, um, uh, that they 
essentially create a, a collective psyche. Yeah, they create a very very close knit group. Yeah, and so that is something that is very deep within us. Yeah, but we have to be careful in that um, uh, that it is not being abused by some form of hierarchy. Yeah, and so you know what I would like to see that a is that. Uh, the secrecy falls away, yeah, because one big important part is, of course, the secrecy that a lot of that stuff uh, is being uh, described, uh, discussed in uh, in uh, in in closed chat rooms, yeah, and that uh, there is sort of also the suggestion to not make it public anymore, because of course the public, you know, notices quite readily. If there is like card mechanisms, you know, if there is like bizarre belief systems, you know, which the public doesn't have a lot of uh, compassion with, and and then also the hierarchy, you know, I think that there needs to be um, social structure structures uh, without hierarchy, you know, social structures uh, um, without you know uh, involvement of any vertical power structures there. So where does that leave teachers? So I think that one thing that is really important for the teacher is that the teacher does not like to, should not try to teach through their personage, yeah, through their personality. So uh, I think that a very toxic belief that I encountered in spirituality, in spiritual circles is that you're transformed through the actual personage of the teacher, yeah, and not transformed through the teaching, through the method, through the practices, yeah. And this is actually something um, uh, in, that exists in, in Ashtanga Yoga very strongly. You know, it was just um, probably like six months ago, and so uh, that means in the year 2018, that I got assailed by somebody who told me that uh, they were so disappointed, you know, that um, I hadn't realized that it was not the techniques, it was not the asana, it was not the panayama, it was not anything about yoga, but it was only about totally submitting to the guru, in this case the guru, uh, Prabhu Joyce was mentioned, yeah, besides the fact that he's, you know, the late Prabhu Joyce, but still even then the act of devotion to him would, was what uh, would uh, purify me spiritually, yeah. So I, I, I received that in email form. So in other words, the belief, you can do whatever you want, you know, but ultimately it's the devotion to the teacher. Yeah. So it's not the teaching, it's not what you do, it's not the method, it's not the practice, and it doesn't matter whether it's asana or meditation, but it's the mystical quality of the teacher that is able to take your karma away and raise your kundalini. Somebody wrote this to you? Yes. And it's a belief that has I've encountered over and over again. It's called Shakti in in Ashtanga, in Ashtanga mythology, that it's the Shakti of the teacher. Yeah? It's the Shakti of the Guru that you get by touching the feet of the Guru that does the work and not what you do on the mat. Yeah? 
So, I mean, we would call that a cult belief. Yeah. And so the problem with that is that there is this belief that it's the teacher that is transforming you instead of you um, transforming yourself with the help of the instruction that you get uh, from the teacher. Yeah. So, look, the way how I'm telling it to my students is when you go to a spiritual teacher, you should regard them similarly like your electrician or your plumber. Yeah. So with a spiritual body, you're sorting something out. So a spiritual teaching, you're sorting something out with your subtle body. Essentially, it's like subtle body plumbing, subtle body electricity. Yeah, let me just a metaphor that I'm using here. Yeah. When you have your electrician come, something is wrong with your uh, electrical system, you're not going to bow down to them and touch their feet. And then when they leave, you say, you're so great, you're so fantastic. No, you're friendly to them, you treat them respectfully, and you pay your invoice, but that's it. Yeah. I think similarly with a spiritual teacher, um, a spiritual teacher would simply try to be a facilitator, nothing else. Yeah. They're teaching you a technical skill. Um, and... You know, you treat them respectfully for it, but they are not trying to pretend that it's through their personage that they are changing something within you and that, that they are taking your karma away, changing you, raising Kundalini within you. You know, I think that's where automatically um, the uh, cult mechanism comes in. Now, the big problem is, is that Deep down, we all want somebody like that. Yeah. And so, where that comes in is that it replicates the early childhood relationship that we had with our primary carer. Yeah. So, especially in those first one, two, three, four years of life, the mother was everything. Yeah. We fed from her body. She wiped our bottom. She caressed us when we were when we were crying in the beginning she even carried us in her body yeah so and it is like part of the human psychology part of the human condition that we try to replicate that later on yeah and possibly you know especially if that connection with the primary care for some reason hasn't been completed and that's what's transference. Then you're trying yes. to work that out later and you have somebody representing. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, of course, it goes two ways. You know, you mentioned the term transference. You know, that's, of course, something used from Freudian psychology. Um, I think that the teacher has to be aware of that and the teacher has to contact that. Yeah. And the teacher has to basically send the student back and say to them, look, you know, I'm not your parent. You know, I mean, that's maybe a harsh word, but I said, look, ultimately you do that yourself. You know, I'm here to teach you a technique. I'm here to teach you a sophisticated set of techniques. And hopefully I am somebody who has practiced them for decades. So maybe, you know, a little bit of respect in return is fine, but not this, oh, wow, you know, you are the one and only, you, you heal me. Yeah. We call that believing your own press. Yes, that's right. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because the fascinating thing is, you know, like 20 years ago, I had this discussion. So this was in Ashtanga 
where, you know, I was discussing all of those things, you know, and one of my good friends said to me, you know what, um, what you're trying to do, meaning to be self-reliant, to take a responsibility for your own spirituality, etc., etc., is just too hard. The only thing that I want is to find somebody who I can devote myself to and they fix all of my problems in return. Now, she really said that to me, yeah? And, and I think this is the problem. This is the problem, you know, like, I've seen so many gurus that started innocently and then comes this projection, this transference, you know, and then as a teacher, if you're not really, you're really aware, you start eventually to believe it, you know, like if so and so many people come to you and tell you you are God and you're so fantastic and then, you know, they're of course flattering you, hopefully in return for some extra attention or whatever, yeah? And then in the, that comes the danger that you believe it. You start believing it. And then, then, then the, the train wreck start, starts, yeah? Of course, even as we're talking about this, and that's, that is where it goes awry for mm. sure. And I have witnessed that where, again, a teacher or anyone who is within that hierarchical system accepts the power and mm. relishes in it. Mm. Maybe it feeds Absolutely. their own. So in, mm. instead of mm. kind of cultivating that relationship and sending it back and empowering mm. on the other hand, can we talk a little bit about the relationship within the Mysore room? Because I know that you teach that way, which is by the way, traditional mm -hmm. <laughs> where there is, well, I'm just coming out of a month of practice and I, I usually practice alone. Mm. So I have very little mm. guidance or interference within my practice. I'm mm. pretty much left to my own devices, which has its benefits and has its dangerous pitfalls. But it's been so nice to be supported in that setting, to actually not have to be the one yes. completely in charge <clears throat> and to have that support in a very physical mm. way, mm. not in a, I, I, I struggle all the time in speaking about this because one of the things with the Ashtanga yoga system, in addition to it be called a cult is that people want to take, there seems to be a stigma attached to that aspect of it. Mm. The teacher student relationship, mm. and I, I'm not calling it, um, the guru or anything mm. like that, but the relationship and the physicality associated with touch mm. within the room. Mm. Yes. So look, um, of course, you know, let me first acknowledge, you know, it's been said before, but, you know, we do have a problem there in Ashtanga culture, you know, obviously uh, some abuse has happened, you know, and, and, and also people have been physically hurt. And so at the moment we are trying to figure out how to avoid that, you know, and I think that the best way by avoiding that and moving forward is to actually first acknowledge it. Yeah, that that has happened. And also trying to take care of the people who have uh, been da damaged and hurt and, and, and take care of them. And it's not helpful for us as a culture at all if you don't do that, because otherwise we can't actually develop solutions and we can't move forward. So let's start with that point, you know. Having said that now, I think that there's an absolute sacredness 
to a teaching setting that is touch-based. Yeah, and so the reason why is. Um, uh, look, the reason is simply because every time when I go into my social class, I do experience it, you know, and it's I can rationalize about it, and I will do that in a moment. But um, it's an absolute blessing and it's an absolute godsend that I have those classes where I can go beyond the cerebral teaching, beyond having to explain everything, beyond having to communicate with students with the mind. And most of my classes are like that, you know, but it's it, it really keeps me sane that there is actually classes that are primarily silent, yeah, and that there's an absolute magic to, and, and, and for me it's a, um, it's a blessing. You know, that I can go into those classes where, um, you know, it's just movement. You know, we are moving together. Um, people are going through their sequences and uh, I can teach them by assisting them in the posture through touch, you know. And so um, Monica does this particular exercise in her classes where you put your two hands against somebody else's two hands and you close their eyes you close your eyes and you simply follow the movement of their hands. And it's amazing that uh, you, it's so easy to understand where somebody else wants to move if you close your eyes. Now do the other exercise where hands are apart and it is actually an in-between exercise where the hands are slightly apart and you can still feel, even when your eyes are closed, that you can still feel where the hands are. I don't know how it works, but it does work, yeah? And then comes the next exercise where you simply tell the person that you're going to move and it doesn't work at all. Is yeah? that right? It doesn't work at all. It's so clumsy. You said, okay, now let's move to the left. They are, they are moving, you are moving. You're much, much faster, much better in the understanding when you close your eyes and feel where the other person is moving, yeah? The feedback moves much faster, yeah? And so this is because... There's an ancient part of our brain. We have worked like that since millions of years together as groups. You know, we have done that. You know, the genus Homo has done it for three million years. And even before when we were primates and mammals, you know, we did it together. We worked together like that, pretty much like one body before we developed language. So, and so what I'm really afraid of and, and, and should I mentioned also, you know, in so many religions, you know, even Christianity, Jesus was healing simply through touch. Yeah? Um, if you meet a friend who uh, has experienced something horrible, uh, you're not going to give them a speech. You're simply going to give them a hug and that's going to be worth more than a thousand words, you know. So my uh, a big fear at the moment is that, you know, there's going to be a situation where due to insurance and legal considerations, we're not going to be able to touch each other anymore. Yeah. So uh, just recently I did a tour through South America and I uh, was picked up at the airport by this group of Argentinians. And I was walked spontaneously over and gave them all a hug and they all started laughing. They said, we were, really, we were wondering, we talked about it, how you were going to go in our culture because for us, touch is something totally normal. We touch each other all the time. 
yeah, and sort of from interacting with them, you know, and that's, um, you know, beside the fact that, you know, every culture has their own problems that they have to work with, but in many ways they seem to be saner like us, you know, Anglo-Saxons or Middle or Northern Europeans because we have so much less touch, yeah, and so I think that um, a lot of... Uh, uh, cuckoo-ness, a lot of psycho-ness comes about because people don't experience a lot of touch anymore, you know, and we are um, wired as uh, as humans, as, as primates and as mammals, we are wired to thrive on touch, you know, and so, um, you know, I guess what I'm saying here is... Uh, uh, for me, the most historical format is an incredible, beautiful format. It's uh, it's something that I lo- I'd love to continue, and it's something that is for me a sacred space. Yeah, and and of course, you know, I hope that we can move forward, and uh, and and sort of work out ways of um, how we can avoid, you know, that people are being over. At, uh, adjusted, you know, or that there is some form of uh, uh, sexual abuse happening. You know, of course, what I think is really important is that we see both sides. You know, I think so. Usually, what happens on one side is these people who say, "Well, this is the tradition; it's always been done like that. We always are going to do it like that, and therefore we can't look at the demerit that has happened." Yeah, and then on the other side, now we have people they say, "Well, you know, all of this has happened; therefore we have to can the." the touch that's i'm feeling that in so many areas within ashtanga yoga that it's it's got it's all or nothing it's this way or that way Mm. and and yet most of the people i meet and are with are in this middle section Mm -hmm. are not on either extreme but we're scared i'm scared i'm actually scared because I don't belong on either end on the mm. very vocal extremes. Mm. I'm right there in the middle. Yeah. Surrounded by a lot of people just like me. Yes. How and and boy, boy, this is kind of mirrors political systems as well. I mean, yeah. this is this is like rampant polarization. Yeah, the, the yes. polarization. And yet it's not representative, I think, of yeah. what's real or yes. what's out there. How Let me just say this before I ask the question. I remember when I was younger, I asked my mom how she could stay a part of the Catholic Church, knowing the history and the the problems. And my mom told me two things. One, she said, the Catholic Church is made up of men and men are fallible. (laughs) And the church is not God. Um, and two, she felt very strongly that change needed to come from within. Mm-hmm. And at she turned, she just turned 80. She'll hate me for saying that. Mm-hmm. But she continues to travel and to be part of that change from within. Mm-hmm. What do you see as our future? Uh, look, um, I think that uh, I agree with what you have said. You know, I think that... Um, the vast majority um, of the worldwide Ashtanga movement, um, they are not represented by the hardcore cult structure, which is at the core, you know. And I've I've tried to to give a bit more um, 
a voice to those people also and to, to express what, what they are thinking. I think strangely enough that there is a lot of awe in Ashtanga Yoga uh, amongst the, the moderate people of the, of the extreme cult structure at the center. Yeah? And I don't think that that, that awe needs to be there. Um, I think that it's it's simply that we need to step forward and show that there's a lot of reasonable people, you know, and that, that we are not injuring people and that if you've done something wrong, we are prepared to say sorry and we are prepared to look at, 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 at our setbacks and, and discuss them, you know, like we are not superhuman. And, uh, you know, we're ready to face criticism, but there's also a lot of beauty to our system, you know. So I think that, um, uh, I think it needs to be that those people need to become more vocal. Yeah, I think they need to become more, more, more vocal because I think to an outstander, it looks too much like a cult because all of the moderate people don't try, don't dare to say beep. Yeah. I think we need to become more bold and and to speak up because you know it's our yoga too. You know, no nobody has a, a, a you know a, a copyright, a trademark on that yoga. Bring the humanity back. Yes, that's right. Thank you, Gregor. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Stay tuned after this short break to hear Gregor sum up our first conversation perfectly as he speaks directly to my heart, talking of every parent's dream for their child. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is made possible by listeners like you who support the show. Because we do not accept sponsors or interrupt the show with ads, your support in any amount really helps. Visit ashtangadispatch.com to donate. We really do appreciate your help. You can listen to a new episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast every month. Just subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you like to download your podcasts. There's also a link on our website to sign up for our email list, so you can be the first to know about any new episodes. Visit ashangadispatch.com. The Ashanga Dispatch podcast is edited, hosted, and produced by my mom, Peg Queen, along with me, Megan Powell. Thanks for listening. What's the highest that you can aim for rather than that your child becomes your friend. That's the highest, isn't it? That's it what is. you want to aim for. Don't you want to bring up and empower another being so that it becomes equal to you, right? And, and isn't, isn't that what's the most emotional satisfying, you know? Or even like at some point sitting down with your child and, and have a discussion about quantum physics, theology, and anthropology, and realize that your child is, has outdone you <laughs> and is intellectually more brilliant. And, and wouldn't that make you totally high? It would make me. Yes. That's the most wonderful. That's the most wonderful, you know? You're standing there as the idiot, and your child stands there in intellectual brilliance, and you feel, I've done a great job. Yeah, isn't that the greatest? And and this is exactly what we want to do uh, as yoga teachers as well. Of course, you know, yes, you know, and, and we want to do that as quickly as possible. And that's so much more thrilling and so much more satisfying than to perpetuate this 
keep bowing down to me and keep touching my feet, you know, and see how great, see me in my greatness, yeah? Which is not intellectually stimulating at all. If a student asks if they can touch your feet, how do you respond? But yeah, I, I, I say them to them that, uh, uh, you know, I, I would prefer not. Um, but if if they then must, I will immediately reciprocate by touching their feet, yeah? Um, which, you know, like, it's really, the teacher should even more be able to recognize the divine in the student than the student in the teacher, yeah? Otherwise, the teacher isn't the teacher, yeah? So if anybody should touch the feet of anybody, it should be the teacher, the feet of the student. Yeah? And this is, you know, what Jesus demonstrated when he washed the feet of the disciples. Yeah? And he, I, I recently watched a video again of Pope Francis uh, washing and kissing the feet of, um, of prison inmates and drug addicts to make a really, really strong uh, demonstration that there was no such thing as a, as a power gradient between students and teachers. Yeah, I believe that this is all part of the, um, <clears throat> of the outgoing power chakra paradigm, yeah? which is something that has ruled the planet and has ruled our, our brains for such a long time that it is, is difficult to, to get away from it but it's something that um, is even like coming up now in religious communities now, you know. There's a new Christian theology that says that the second coming of Christ is uh, the community of practitioners, yeah? Or even um, Thich Nhat Hanh also said that uh, the coming Buddha Maitreya, yeah, the next Buddha is the Sangha, yeah? So it's the community of practitioners in which all are uh, totally equal. Um, that, that, that is, in, in that community, the divine can embody itself. Yeah? And as long as we maintain a, a stratified hierarchy, the divine cannot do that because in the divine itself is no stratification. Yeah. So that means if we as a community want to receive the divine, we actually have to create a community which is not stratified whatsoever. And, and people are afraid of that. People are afraid of that. 